This week, scouring the genome to trace the onset of puberty. We were amazed at the kind of diverse range of biological pathways and processes that all these genes fell into. And the startup companies hoping to feed the grid with fusion. Some of them are talking about uh, having a at least a prototype power reactor in less than a decade. Plus, three decades of data on fur seals hold some surprises for biologists. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 24th, 2014. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs> By the end of the 19th century, decades of hunting for their prized pelt had driven Antarctic fur seals close to extinction. But over the next hundred years, the population rebounded and the seals were once again wallowing all over the beaches of South Georgia Island, which lies partway between the tip of South America and Antarctica. Your first impression is this is bloody terrifying. This is a beach full of fur seals in the middle of the breeding season. This is an archive recording of biologist John Croxall talking about the seals' favourite offshore haunt, Bird Island. Uh, these are big animals, very powerful, highly aggressive. So your initial reaction is, oh, shh. You know, what's going on here? But of course, you were looking always upwards because the sky was just full of albatrosses going in and out of the colonies, even around the base on Bird Island. The British Antarctic Survey has been collecting data on the South Georgia Island seals since 1981, even throughout the long winters. They've been counting them, measuring their length, weighing their pups, monitoring what they eat and when they breed, and taking tissue samples for genetic analysis. What they're finding is worrying. The numbers of seals are decreasing again, mostly, it seems, because of climate change. Marion Turner spoke with Jauma Forcada from the British Antarctic Survey. What have you seen change over those 30 years, both in the seals and in the climate? We have seen how the mass of the pups that are born has been declining steadily. Now, for instance, pups are born with an 8% body mass lower than it used to be about 20 or 25 years ago. And we've also observed that only those that are bigger will reach the uh, first breeding attempt and most likely breed successfully later on. And also they start breeding a bit later. And why do you think that might be the case? We were able to say that those changes were triggered by a lack of food. So basically the seals weren't able to find the food where they would normally be finding it and they would have like we would call uh, nutritive stress. They don't have the resources to grow properly. It's, and it's well known even in humans that when females start reproducing until they have a minimum body mass they cannot do so. So basically that's what we have been observing. What is the seal's main food supply and, and why has that, the predictability of that been changing? The, the seal's main food supply in the area is Antarctic krill. Antarctic krill is a very, very abundant resource in the Southern Ocean. Um, however, what we know now is that the krill is very responsive to the local oceanography and changes in temperature and also changes of the sea ice cover. And that's what we have been observing that there have been fundamental changes in those environmental variables and those have been cascading down, if you want, into the availability of the mothers to find the krill. 
the overall change that you're seeing is that there are fewer pups that are reaching reproductive age and, and this is leading to an overall decline in, in the population. You're also seeing some interesting genetic effects. Could you tell me a little bit about them? Absolutely. We observed something that was really unprecedented in, in any study of a wild population, particularly of long-lived animals. And it was that over the last 20 years, we have seen an increase in the levels of genetic variation in individuals. And those genetic differences are associated with a higher fitness in the individuals. So what we have observed over time is that the heterozygosity, or if you want, the individual genetic variation in mothers has been increasing. And when we look at the heterozygosity in the pups that these mothers have been produced, it has virtually remained the same. In other words, we have not observed that trend on the pups. So what was happening is that pups that were born and were not very heterozygous, those were lost along the way to adulthood to becoming a, a breeding mother. But because the heterozygosity is sort of reset every generation, that survival of the more heterozygous animals isn't actually going to help them to sort of adapt to climate change? Correct. Like you will say, it's a process that occurs within a generation. So this means that there's no evolution, which is a consequence of inheriting some advantageous traits from mothers to pups and so that cannot rescue this population. So, Jama, what do you think is going to be the fate of these seal populations? The, the fate of these seal populations is, is definitely a changing population trajectory. It's going to be possibly a change in distribution, but it's very, very difficult to predict because at the end of the day, evolution is something that occurs through many, many generations, and these are quite long-lived animals. A female fur seal can live over 24, 25 years and breed throughout its life. And so if we continue these studies into the future, we can continue finessing what's going to be the genetic response to the changing climate with the new patterns of climate. That was Jauma Forcada talking to Marion Turner. Coming up shortly, unearthing the gene variants behind the most argumentative of times, puberty. Plus, getting energy from nuclear fusion and the startups with ambitious deadlines. But first, the best stuff published elsewhere this week. It's time for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. There's another reason to love cheese. It's a handy way to study microbial communities. A team from Harvard sourced over 130 cheeses from 10 countries, scraped off some rind and cultured the bacteria and fungi they found there. The main cheese-loving species were easy to culture, proving cheese rinds a nice tractable lab system. The team even made their own in vitro cultures, kind of like cheese juice, so they could manipulate the microbes and watch the results. One hopes the leftover cheese didn't go to waste. Find that paper and some cheesy pictures in the journal Cell. Frozen carbon dioxide, not liquid water, might be carving out the gullies visible on Mars. 
The red planet is covered in sharp gullies, channels that some scientists think were sculpted by ancient flows of water. But a study of high-res images from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter suggests that the gullies are still growing and changing shape, and this could be down to the Martian winter, which is cold enough to freeze carbon dioxide. Water isn't needed, it seems. The results appear in the journal Icarus. age was born. Here, in fact, is the answer to a dream as old as man himself, a giant of limitless power at man's command. And where was it science found that giant? In the atom, a particle so infinitely small that it takes over a hundred billion billion atoms to make up the head of a pin. The promise of atomic energy from a 1952 information film, A is for Atom. We have nuclear energy, of course, from splitting apart atoms, or nuclear fission, but many would like to make energy from fusion. The general idea is to trap light elements like hydrogen inside a magnetic field, add heat and pressure until they form a plasma, and keep everything there until some of their nuclei fuse and some of the mass converts into energy. This is the goal of several giant projects, chief among them ITER, being built in France at a cost of billions of dollars but there are some smaller fish in the big fusion pond. Several startups are also trying to get fusion going. Nature's Mitch Waldrop has profiled a few of them, and he joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Mitch, ITER and other large fusion projects expect to take decades to work and cost billions. So what makes these smaller outfits think they can succeed any faster? Well, uh, for one thing, these are not massive international projects uh, with a lot of you know, government bureaucracy and checks and balances and uh, international negotiations on everything. Well, one of the problems with ITER isn't the technology so much, though that has been a challenge. Uh, it's been the management, which is very divided and chaotic. As to why the startups think they can do it more cheaply, well, they're doing simpler reactors. Now, in the past, these kind of designs have not had the ability to confine the plasma for as long or to get the densities or temperatures that the tokamaks can. A tokamak is a, a type of donut-shaped device that traps the plasma inside magnetic fields. The proponents, the uh, advocates, the upstarts, as we call them in the story, think uh, that they can see ways to obtain the kind of densities and pressures and temperatures you would need in order to uh, get sustained fusion. There are some people developing different shaped reactors. So when you say tokamak, you're talking about this donut-shaped reactor. Right. It is a particular type of donut-shaped reactor that uses a complex set of coils winding around it. And the modern ones, that they're superconducting coils. Um, and it uses those coils to shape the magnetic field that confines the plasma inside the donut. Uh, one of the alternatives being proposed is uh, the tri-alpha reactor. The best way to describe it is like two cannons pointing barrel to barrel that are designed to fire a smoke ring-shaped plasmoid, a, a, a small knot of plasma, and they fire these things at each other. 
Uh, and when they meet in the middle, they form a larger plasma ring that the uh, tri-alpha hopes to be able to sustain indefinitely and just keep that thing spinning indefinitely while the fusion proceeds inside it. So these, these private projects are also using different types of fuel, aren't they? Replacing the very radioactive deuterium-tritium fuel for something easier to handle. And the folks behind Tri-Alpha are using a boron isotope that produces non-radioactive helium nuclei, or alpha particles, hence the company name. I mean, this is ambitious technology. Who's supporting them and, and whose cash is this? Tri-Alpha and also another company called General Fusion uh, up in Vancouver um, are getting a lot of money from philanthropists. In the case of Tri-Alpha, that includes Paul Allen, the uh, co-founder of Microsoft, a multi-billionaire. They're also getting, though, venture capital. There is a huge interest in the investment community and new forms of power that would be carbon-free, as fusion would be. That's one of the big attractions. But also could provide what's called baseline power. That is power that will run regardless of whether it's sunny or rainy outside or whether or not the wind is blowing. As the reporter on this feature, what's your view? I mean, do you think they'll ever get there, these companies? And how long will it be before they do? Well, uh, some of them are talking about uh, having a at least a prototype power reactor in less than a decade, which is considering that the mainstream approach represented by ITER are talking about 30 to 50 years, less than a decade is pretty quick. But, you know, they've got to get the designs off the paper and into an actual working demonstration prototype. On man's wisdom, on his firmness in the use of that power, depends now the future of his children and his children's children. In the new world of the atomic age. With thanks to Mitch Waldrop, whose feature you can read for free at nature.com slash news. It's the news chat in just a moment, so hang around for that. First, though, puberty. It happens to all of us at one point or another. For most women, the process starts between the age of 10 and 16. But the age of onset of puberty has more impacts than just teen anxiety and buying your first deodorant. It's also been linked with conditions like diabetes and obesity later in life. But what prompts puberty and how does it link to later health? The contributing factors, both genetic and non-genetic, are poorly understood. Enter John Perry and his team at the University of Cambridge in the UK. They scoured the genomes of thousands of women to try to understand this angsty problem. I spoke with John and asked what we know to date about this tricky teen transition. So one determining factor is the girl's body weight, so especially the amount of body fat she has. Heavier girls tend to mature earlier than average, however there are likely to be many other mechanisms involved, both genetic and non-genetic, and so we set up this study to try and pin down what were the genetic determinants of puberty timing. And what exactly did you do in this study? So we carried out a very large-scale international study to identify genetic variations or differences that were correlated with puberty timing. So this involved integrating many data sets across the world, which tested millions of different genetic variants in over 180,000 women. And, and you found 106 genetic loci that control this onset of puberty in women? 
although we could confidently assign um, 106 to be involved in puberty timing, really what the data suggested to us was that it's likely to be hundreds or possibly thousands of genetic variants and genes involved in um, the timing of puberty. And um, in addition to just the sheer complexity of um, puberty timing that was revealed, we identified a special set of genes known as imprinted genes that played a role in puberty timing. So for the vast majority of genes in the genome, you inherit a copy from your mother and a copy from your father, and both copies are equally active. Imprinted genes are unusual because only one of these parental copies is active whilst the other is silenced. So for example, for a paternally imprinted or silenced gene, only the copy inherited from the mother is active. It's possible therefore that within a family, the puberty timing of a child may be more similar to one parent than the other. So why are there more imprinted genes involved in this process? Or have you just found more because you've done a really big study? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. So um, just talking about imprinting in general, so we don't know for sure how or why gene imprinting arose. But there's a lot of um, debate about this, and the most popular theory is that it's due to an evolutionary tug-of-war between maternal and paternal genes on, fete- on fetal growth. So, for example, speaking in terms of evolution, paternal genes will seek to maximise growth of the developing baby and the acquisition of maternal resources. On the other hand, maternally expressed genes will seek to reserve some of their own biological resources with the aim of increasing the chances of having additional children in the future. So really there is a tug of war between the kind of genetic interests of these genes. Um, And really, up until now, imprinted genes were largely thought to be important for the growth and development of babies before birth. However, our study supports the idea that these genes continue to play a role in later life health and disease. You found 106 definite genomic loci so far. What do they actually do? You know, onset of puberty seems to be linked to a lot of stuff in the body. Is there one sort of starting point? So for us, I mean, we were amazed at the kind of diverse range of biological pathways and processes that all these genes fell into. I mean, for some um, regions, the, the genes were more obvious than others. So in some regions, we're identifying genes where we know from animal studies or from, from other human studies that they are, play an important role in puberty timing. But for the vast majority of genes that we're identifying, they were completely, they had no prior implication in, um, in puberty timing. And so these were across a broad range of biological pathways, such as energy homeostasis and autoimmunity, and sex hormone signalling. But really what we need to do now is to, for further molecular studies to really hone in on some of these genes and really understand how exactly they're working, what pathways they're impacting on, what their exact effect is. So a lot more is happening in puberty than just hair in new places. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a complex process and we're just beginning to understand it a bit more. That was John Perry, who's at the University of Cambridge. News time now, and I'm joined in the studio by news editor David Ray. And first off, the plane crash MH17, which has been a tragedy all round, but specifically also for science. Yeah, as you say, I mean, not good news generally, but uh, from a scientific point of view and certainly from a research point of view, uh, the the loss of six um, HIV researchers who are flying out to a um, a big conference, the big conference of the year on uh, AIDS and HIV in Melbourne, uh, confirmed six confirmed dead now, unfortunately, including a a very sort of prolific uh, researcher who was a former 
head of the International AIDS Society, which organises this conference. So a sort of huge personal loss for the delegates gathered in Melbourne for that conference. And what kind of impact could this loss have on HIV research? Well, I think in particular, the impact is going to be felt in, in the Netherlands. These were six, uh, well, sorry, five um, Dutch people and one English guy who worked for uh, the WHO. And I think the feeling at the, the conference, certainly that we picked up on uh, on Sunday and Monday, was that, that this was going to be a sore loss. And that it was also a good reason to build on the work that these people had done. They were sort of, as well as Stuart Langer, who was the researcher, there was a bunch of activists and campaigners who died for working for multiple Dutch uh, NGOs. And obviously the work that they do, for example, you know, sort of espousing the uh, female condoms and this kind of thing, it's just as important as the research that's happened. And the conference that these um, scientists were on their way to is going on as we speak in, in Melbourne. Um, how, how are they marking this? Is there something being done there? Yeah, there was. I mean, unfortunately, when this, the news broke last week, there was actually initially a, a huge scare that there were many dozens of people on this plane. And I think over the weekend that became apparent it was not the case. But still, the conference opened on Sunday with a very sombre opening ceremony led by 11 former presidents of the International AIDS Society uh, and a sort of a, a moment's silence and a few dedication. The conference itself was dedicated to the six people who died um, and lots of other stuff going on on the sort of sidelines of the conference. There's a book of uh, condolences that's been opened by the Dutch contingent there and uh, and also sort of a lot of inspiration basically being taken from these people who died and how they can further the cause of HIV. I think the focus particularly of the conference this year is on HIV in the developing world and getting better access to treatment to these people and uh, a lot of these the, the uh, researchers and campaigners who died were involved in that. This kind of thing isn't something which happens especially regularly in science to have a group of people from one particular um, research area hit at one time. Yeah, a terrible coincidence. And I think we were sort of anecdotally speaking to other people at the conference who said that they'd been on planes which were absolutely packed full of people going to this conference. So in a way, it's, it's lucky that um, it, it, was, it was not a, a sort of bigger loss to the HIV uh, community. But then that's not to take anything away from the fact that 298 people were killed on this plane. And uh, I think they should be first and foremost within our thoughts. And on to our next story. We It's another one from Australia, um, but this time about carbon tax. Yeah, so I think another sort of bad news story for the, the scientific community. So a couple of years ago, Australia introduced a carbon tax system whereby heavy polluters had to pay a certain amount of money per uh, tonne of carbon dioxide that they emitted, and this particularly hit utilities companies. Um, it, it was, the, the move was basically put in place to, uh, to console emissions. And it was very unpopular with the sort of wide Australian public because the utilities companies passed on the costs to uh, to the paying public. Uh, but it was quite popular with scientists. And certainly in the last couple of years, it's turned up trumps. It's raised a lot of money from the back of this tax, which has been used to sort of tackle environmental and pollution issues more widely. And it's also reduced emissions by about 5% amongst the power companies. So it kind of was working. But a new government came in in September under Tony Abbott and... Uh, one of the first things they wanted to do was get rid of this carbon tax. They didn't think it was worthwhile. I think uh, Tony Abbott was very uh, detrimental about it. He called it a, a sort of destructive tax. So he managed to get a bill through Parliament, which has basically pulled back this carbon tax, and it now doesn't exist. And it sounds to me like Australia were quite forward-thinking with this carbon tax in, in researchers' minds. What does this represent um, for researchers' communities as, as this tax is taken away? Indeed. I mean, it's researchers who are sort of most annoyed about this. I think the, the plan was to roll out this carbon tax into a wider emissions trading system, and this is where companies can buy and sell allowances. So if they think they're going to emit a particularly large amount of carbon dioxide one year, they can buy someone else's share of that. And, and, and it's a sort of a market system, basically, for this. And that was a few years off 
yet, but that's obviously gone with um, with the carbon tax. There's no plans to do that anymore. And the searchers said, why are we doing this? Well, sorry, I mean, the searchers saying, why are we doing this when the, the whole system seemed to be working? We seem to be pulling down emissions. And there's also indications that it's if Australia is pulling back on this kind of uh, initiative, then does that mean other countries are not even going to consider it in the future? Was there any indication that other countries are going to be following suit? And could this really put significant breaks on that? Yeah, well, the EU has an established emissions trading system, which is slightly more complicated, but the Australian system was, was hoping to join it a few years down the line, so they could sort of be the first sort of inklings of a global system. But uh, that is obviously not happening now either. And other countries who who are thinking about this, uh, that there's some, some smaller regional emission trading systems in places like China, and the US is, is also considering one. And the researchers that we spoke to are now thinking this is less likely to happen on the back of the Australian decision. And you mentioned there was public opinion against this tax. How much is, has that influenced the repealing of it, or how much of it is the, the politics of the new government that's come in? Yeah, a couple of diving forces here. I mean, the Abbott government since the end of last year has has sort of been dismantling a couple of, of uh, climate change agencies, which critics are using as an excuse to say that he is uh, not taking climate change as seriously as he could do. But the flip side of that, of course, is that this um, tax has raised an enormous amount of money. I mean, $6.2 billion US dollars uh, just last year. But this money has to come from somewhere, and it came from the, the paying public. And this is the part that they're not happy about. So with the abolition of the tax goes that you know, the extra money they're having to spend. And uh, Tony Abbott saying that uh, each household will be about 550 US dollars better off for this move. And in light of this, how likely is it that Australia will ever reintroduce this kind of tax, you know, looking forward? Um, are we going to start seeing this kind of thing come back in again? Highly unlikely, I think. I mean, but one of the points that our the searches makes is that this whole carbon emissions system, trading system, doesn't take into account the political reality, which is that someone has to pay for these uh, these systems, and uh, the voting public may choose not to. And I think certainly at the moment, when people are a bit strapped for cash, this may not have been the best time to try and launch such a scheme. It may well be that other countries have more success doing this. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Thank you very much, David. And remember, you can read all those stories and more for free at nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. Remember, we are podcast at nature.com on email and at nature podcast on Twitter. So stay in touch however you like. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Picker. <laughs>